Well, good morning, North Point. It's an honor to get to be, what an honor to worship the Lord with you today. Um, I, I've been in Oklahoma Baptist since nine months before I was born. And, and the first time that I ever raised my hand in worship, I had to go into physical therapy for three weeks. I mean, it just, but some about singing about the risen Lord ought to cause us to get excited, right? Love that song. Thank you, Grant, worship team. Uh, it's an honor for Julie and I to get to be with you today and uh, honor to stand where Pastor Eric stands. It's, it's interesting. This is my first time ever to get to be with the North Point family, but there are just so many connections. So uh, when, uh, when Pastor Eric came to be a part of the staff of the church here, he came from College Heights Baptist Church in Chickasha. And uh, I was the pastor of College Heights Baptist Church in Chickasha before Eric came on staff there. And uh, just kind of cool to get to, we got to do a lot of life with a lot of the same people and to do that. So I've been corresponding with Grant in preparation for today. And I thought, man, I know this guy. How do I know this guy? And so in my previous life, between the years I spent pastoring churches and the role that I'm currently in, I'll talk about in a moment today, uh, one of the things that I did is I was our director of conference centers, which meant I kind of had oversight over what we do at Falls Creek and Cross Timbers. And uh, Grant was on staff and led worship at Cross Timbers the first year we were in Davis, about 10 years ago now. And uh, it's just cool to get to be back. And uh, uh, glad to see, Grant, you have not lost any of your energy or passion for the Lord. And I know that you appreciate the way he leads you so well. Um, currently, for about the past nine months, I have had the privilege of serving as the president of our Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children. And uh, Oklahoma Baptists are, are kind of a family that has a lot of different aspects of that family. And uh, one of those aspects for a long time is Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children. And we, we do three primary things, and I know that your church has been engaged with this ministry for a long time, but we, uh, we're involved in foster care from the standpoint of our goal is not to try to do everything that a foster care agency does. But our goal is we want to help the church to engage with foster families. So we provide training and we provide resources that enable the church to serve those families well. And we're looking at opportunities to engage in some other ways. We've been working with our state, Oklahoma of Human Services, saying what are the needs that you see and how could we step in and help meet those. It's a huge need in our state. And uh, we're glad that we have the opportunity to speak into that and to help churches to be engaged in that. We also operate the Hope Pregnancy Centers. There are eight of those around the state of Oklahoma. We've opened two new ones this year, one in Shawnee and one in Alva. And uh, probably proximity to here, we have one in Edmond, and we also have one in the north part of Oklahoma City, just kind of catty-corner across from the Village Baptist Church. And uh, a lot of times I fear that because... We're so thankful that Roe v. Wade was overturned last year that we forget that that, that issue is still facing us today. Uh, in fact, so in Oklahoma, it's uh, almost impossible to get a surgical abortion, but yet the number one way that babies are being aborted in our country today are through chemical abortions, and that's still very prevalent. And the fact that we border some states where abortion is legal but also very encouraged um, is, is a reality that we face as well. Many people don't know that Planned Parenthood will actually pay for a woman to come to Wichita, Kansas 
put her up in a hotel room in order that she might have an abortion. And so we, are, uh, we still are on the front line of that and uh, appreciate your prayers and support. I'm excited that uh, one of the things we partner in helping do in our state is Rose Day, and I'm excited to hear Josiah speak at Rose Day this year. So if you don't have that on your calendar, Wednesday, February the 7th, I would invite you to join us at the Capitol for Rose Day. And we're excited about helping our legislators understand how we're thankful for what they've done, and we want to support them as we continue that work. The other thing that we do, and we've done for a very long time, is is we operate four campuses. We have the Oklahoma Baptist Home for Girls in Medill, and I know that your church family's been very involved with the Boys Ranch Town in Edmond, and uh, those are um, places that do exactly what their names say. We care for young men and young women seeking to show and share the love of Christ with them on those campuses. At our campus in Owasso, we have boys and girls and we also operate a ministry there that we call Children's Hope, which is uh, single moms who come with their children to the campus. And our campus on the south side of Oklahoma City does exclusively that ministry today. And uh, we're excited that we get the opportunity to speak into uh, children and families at a very vulnerable time in their life. And uh, I just want to say thank you for your support of that. And uh, I want to share with you from the passage of Scripture that that was mentioned uh, earlier, that God used in my heart. So almost a year ago right now, um, I was in the process of interviewing to become the president. And uh, as, as I sought to do that, uh, I, I did some looking into the history of our organization. So this is what we now call Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children. It's actually the longest continual cooperative work among Baptists in Oklahoma. So in the fall of 1902, 121 years ago, a gentleman named J.A. Scott got up in front of the Oklahoma Baptist Convention, the territory convention that was meeting in Norman, Oklahoma, and said, uh, I'm going to make a motion. And if you've ever been to a Baptist meeting, somebody's going to make a motion, right? And he asked the moderator to establish or appoint a committee that would study the propriety of founding and locating a Baptist orphan's home in Oklahoma. And what happened after that was the most Baptist thing I've ever heard of in my life. They, they appointed him a committee of one, elected him the superintendent of the first orphanage, and didn't allocate a dollar for him to do it with. Isn't that the most Baptist thing you've ever heard of? Hey, good luck. We'll be warm, be filled. We're behind you. Way behind you, right? And uh, the next year, in 1903... The Indian Territory Baptist Convention met in Duncan, Oklahoma, and they voted to cooperate with Oklahoma Baptist to, and I love this language, to fully establish and sustain the Baptist Orphan's Home in Oklahoma. So for 120 years, we've been a part of this ministry. And we've done that in cooperation with our convention, as a part of our convention, and now as a separate organization. But in studying some of the history Back in the 1970s, a gentleman named Lowell Milburn was the director of child care work in Oklahoma. And, and he wrote this phrase. He quoted Psalm 2710. Different translations say it different ways, but the old King James says this. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. And he made some statements about 
what was going on in the state of Oklahoma. And you can imagine now that's 25, 35 years ago. Imagine how much worse that is in our culture today. And then he made a statement that the Lord used to grab my heart. He said, and I believe God has called the Baptist of Oklahoma to take up for the children in need in our state. And I'm so thankful that God still gives us that opportunity. And so this is how I study Scripture. By the way, there's a lot of bad theology going around today because somebody picks one verse out of, out of context and, and runs with it. You know, let me give you an example. This would be a bad way to practice Scripture. The Scripture says if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I wouldn't recommend you going to do that today, right? But if you built all of your theology on one verse, that could be a dangerous thing. So I started to do this deep dive into Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm that most scholars believe David wrote while he was running from Saul. And if you remember back to the history of, of David's life, David, who was a, a shepherd boy, his dad didn't even think he was the one that should be the king, remember? When he asked all the sons to come in, he left David out taking care of the sheep. And David is anointed king by Samuel. David goes and slays Goliath. And the people start to cheer for David. And they say things like, Saul, who was the king, has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul's heart grew jealous, and he sought to destroy David to defend his kingdom. And David runs and hides the anointed king and we see him pouring out his heart to the Lord. And actually, this psalm's a rich psalm because the first six verses of this psalm, we see David at, at the height of excitement and devotion to the Lord. Listen to how the psalm begins in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Verse 4 is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. But in verse 7, it all changes. And you see David going through this time where, where his emotions have changed, where his outlook is affected. And with that idea, you see something that has caused people who study God's word, the scholars that we often refer to, some have questioned, maybe, maybe two people wrote this psalm. How could somebody go from, from the height of confidence to cowardice? How could somebody go from, from this great sense of triumph to having a sense of terror in their voice? And to those scholars, I would say this. They don't know me very well. Because I can go from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the valley with one text message or phone call, can't you? You see, we know that faith and fear live next door to each other. And, and as we seek to walk in life, we're going to have those mountaintop experiences, but we're also going to have those times of very difficult challenge. And as we do, we need to be reminded where we turn. I want you to notice with me what we learned from David in this passage of Scripture. Uh, David goes through a time in, in verses 9 and 10 where I think he experiences a sense of rejection. 
Notice he says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me. Some of you may read out of a translation of Scripture where it says, do not leave me or forsake me. It's a really powerful word in in Scripture. This morning in in my Bible reading time, we're reading the Bible chronologically, and we're up to the time where Jesus was crucified on the cross, and he quoted Psalm 22.1, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken means exactly what we read here in the CSB version of the Bible, to leave or abandon, that, that David feels like that his eternal father whom he worshipped had forsaken him. But not only his eternal father, look at verse 10. He thinks his earthly family has forsaken him. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. We don't know much about David's earthly family other than he was the the son of Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And the last time that we see any mention of David's family in the Bible is in 1 Samuel when he calls them to the cave of Adullam where he's hiding from Saul. And he takes them down to Moab, I believe, for safety, probably to some extended family, maybe some of Ruth's line. And that's the last time we hear anything about David's parents in the family. And as we think about that, we don't know whether maybe they turned their back on him. We don't know if they died in Moab and he never saw them again. We don't know. But what we know is is that David felt like that those closest to him weren't there for them. Do you know what? That's an epidemic in our culture today, isn't it? That, that the people that should be the closest to us and provide the support for us, often, in fact, the ministry that I have the privilege of leading, we see that day in and day out, where the people that should be counted on the most can't be found. And this reality caused David to come to a turning point. In fact, I think the whole psalm turns on the last phrase of verse 10. Notice what David says. He, he's talked about, God, where are you? He said, I don't know where my family is. And then he says, but the Lord cares for me. And I think David starts to come up out of that valley that we see him plunge into in verses 7 and following. And as he does, we learn a couple of things that give us great insight about where do we turn. And so here's what I want you to see. Now, you guys have never heard me preach, some of you before. Um, You probably need to know a couple things about the way I'm going to preach. One is I'm going to ask you to leave your Bibles open or the ability to access it on your screen because we're going to walk through these next four verses. And uh, I've got a two-point sermon, but each point has two sub-points. So if you're doing the math, that's either a four- or six-point sermon, right? Here's what I like to say to people when they're concerned about that. It's better that there are points in a sermon than a pointless sermon, right? Just a good good thought. So so let's start by doing this. Let me show you David's call. Here's his call. Here's what he does in relationship to the Lord. And I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord. And lead me on a level path 
Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. So David makes a call to the Lord. His call to the Lord is, Lord, I need your first direction. He calls out for God's direction. Now, no, notice how this passage begins in verse 11. He says, because of my adversaries. So I want you to hang on to that. Because the idea of the, of the adversaries is going to come into play again in verse 12. But notice what he calls out to the Lord after that statement. Show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. He's asking for the Lord to direct him. In fact, the language is very similar to another great passage in the Old Testament that you may be familiar with. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Solomon pins these words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then the translations will vary quite a bit in how they, the last phrase of verse 6. Some say, and he will direct. Other translations say, he will guide. And some translations say, he will make smooth or straight your path. And here's the idea. It's the same idea that David uses here in the language of Scripture. It's not the idea of, of the Lord taking away every obstacle. In fact, one of the great misconceptions that causes many people in their journey of being a faithful follower of Christ to get frustrated is many people think, if I trust in Jesus, then everything's going to be easy and okay. In fact, I think the opposite is true. When we trust in Jesus then the enemy ramps up his efforts against us. And because of that, we need the Lord to direct us, to guide us along the way. Now, I grew up down in southwest Oklahoma outside of Lawton in a little community called Geronimo. And I grew up on a farm family, and we were, we were out in the country all the time. And here's what I know about driving down a country road. If you're going to drive down a country road, you want somebody to be with you who's familiar with that road. Because on every country road, there's potholes, chug holes, craters, and there's places maybe where it's washed out or where there's a turn that you're not aware of. And, and I remember as, as a boy, I would, I would go with my granddad a lot, and uh, my granddad taught me to drive before it was legal to do. Now, that's a country phenomenon. And uh, I would be driving down the road. My granddad would be in the front seat of the pickup, and he would say, now, slow down, because right up here there's a big hole. Or he would say, now, get over a little bit so you can miss that hole. And he gave me direction as I was following with him on the road. I got good news for you, church. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knows the road and when we walk close with him he will guide us doesn't take away all the rocks but he guides us in the right path as we follow him in order for us to do that we've got to spend time in his presence seeking his face can I tell you something I'm really afraid of today in the church that we love the hand of God, 
We love when God gives us things, right? I'm not sure we always like to seek the face of God. We love to sing about it, but do we make that commitment to spend the time in the presence seeking the face of God? His call is for direction, but notice what else. Remember that first phrase that we looked at, because of my adversaries? He calls for deliverance. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. Isn't it amazing that if our enemy, and and notice I said that singular. I think the Bible is true when it says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. What that means is people are not our enemies. People are sinners in need of a Savior just like us, right? But we have an enemy, the evil one. Jesus described him as the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And our enemy, if he can't hurt us with weapons, he'll hurt us with words. The great English preacher of a generation gone by, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said that slander is one of the great weapons in the armory of hell still often in use today. Words hurt us. I had the privilege down in southwest Oklahoma of having my maternal great-grandmother in my home a lot when I was a kid. And she was born before the turn of the last century. And uh, she was a very stereotypical kind of pioneer country woman. She always wore a dress. Usually when she went outside, she put this big bonnet on. One of my fondest childhood memories is she rolled up a newspaper and went outside and whipped the tomato plants. She said, there'll, there'll be better tomatoes on them because of that. And she, you know, she used all these colorful phrases. You know what, Julie and I were sitting out on the back porch back a month or two ago, and Saturday morning it was raining and the sun was shining over in the east. And my grandma would say that when the, it was raining and the sun was shining that the devil was whooping his wife. Now, I don't even know what that means. But, man, she just said stuff like that all the time. And, and do you know what? That, she called me Jimmy. She said, Jimmy, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Do you know what? That little sweet lady lied to me. Just flat out lied to me. In fact, I, I've, I've healed up from some of the sticks and stones, but I still carry some of those words. Our enemy seeks to harm us and if he can't do it with weapons he'll do it with words and the bible says he's a liar and we need to be reminded that he doesn't define us we're defined for what christ has done for us and we're defined for our future destiny i love the the last phrase or the last chorus verse of that of the song we sang at the end when it says when he returns in robes of white. That day's coming, church. That's our future. That's our destiny. That's who we are. Children of the king, bought by the blood, redeemed with the price, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We need deliverance from our enemy, and it's been purchased by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David's call, his direction, and his deliverance. Now, 
you see this continuing to turn. He, he's come up out of the valley, and in verses 13 and 14, he gets all the way up out of the valley. And we see his call. Now we see his confidence. David has come up to the top, and he's expressing his confidence in the Lord. Notice verses 13 and 14. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Now, th think about the idea of confidence, or we might say trust or faith. I think that confidence has two elements to it. One is a trust element. That, that's where I'm putting my faith in. Or I'm, and the other is a time element. That, that I'm not just doing it, but I'm going to keep on doing it, right? I, I can trust in something for the moment, but true confidence means I've trusted in it for time. And so we see here in verse 13, David is bringing the trust element back into focus. And, and as he does that, as he expresses his confidence, he is saying this is a confidence that secures me or brings security to me. Notice what he says. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. David is saying, I'm taking my stand in the goodness of God. What a powerful statement that I have this confidence and it brings this security of my life because I am certain that I will experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. Now, that image of the land of the living carries the idea about the future. Often you might, we might think of it as say that I will experience the goodness of God in his presence in heaven one day, in the land of the living, that he has that security, and security brings great confidence in our life. Can, can I tell you something? We all have a need for security. When people have security, life's better for them. When people live with that sense of, of security, they are able to do those things. In fact, in the ministry that I have the privilege of leading, we know one of the first things we need to do is help children feel a sense of security. I, I was this summer out at camp in the panhandle speaking to boys and girls about our work, and I asked a question. Now, in case you don't know this, when you ask public questions to children, there's always a level of danger with that, right? And so I asked, I said, what does every boy and girl need? And, and hands shot up. And I got three levels of answers. I got Sunday school answers. You know what Sunday school answers are? It's like the teacher who asked the boys and girls in Sunday school class, can you tell me what's brown and has a bushy tail and likes nuts and lives in a tree? And there was this awkward silence for a moment. Finally, one little boy says, teacher, that sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus, right? Those are Sunday school answers. Doesn't, the answer is Jesus or pray or read your Bible, right? So I got, those, I got those Sunday school answers. And then I got some real-world honest answers. A cell phone. Brand-new Nike tennis shoes, right? And then I got one real answer. Boy kind of in the back of the room raised his hand up kind of sheepishly, and I called on him. And he said they need a roof over their head and food on a table. 
I thought that was kind of an interesting answer, but a, but a, but a true one. And afterwards, his pastor came up and said, do you know why he said that? I said, no, I don't. He said, because a few months ago, he didn't have either one of those things. And I could tell you stories. Probably the most prevalent one in my mind is the story of a young man who came to Boys Ranch a few years ago and all he had in his possession, everything was in a Walmart sack. We see that all the time. Security is a basic human need, right? Can, can I tell you something? Security doesn't come through stuff. Security comes from our Savior. We have what we need in him that secures us. So we see a confidence in David that secures, but we also see a confidence, and I close with this, that strengthens. Now, before I close, I probably need to say this. I've been a Baptist preacher for about 30-some years. So I can close things like five or six times sometimes. I'm going for one today. Are you with me? All right. Listen to verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. You see here a very common usage in, in Hebrew poetry or wisdom literature. It's that coupling Notice the verse begins and ends with the same phrase. It's a point of emphasis. The psalmist is saying, I, I'm, I'm sharing my commitment that I'm going to wait on the Lord. It, it's a really powerful word, the word wait. It, it's a word that the word picture of it is the twisting or the stretching of strands to make a rope. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says a, a rope of three strands is not easily broken. It's the idea that there's strength in the number being put together. And, and the picture here is this powerful picture of that we come to the Lord and, and we have our weaknesses and we have our frailties and we have our flaws and our failures. But when we wrap them around the person and the power of our Lord, there's strength. That, that he brings us to strength. And it's the very same word that's used in a verse of Scripture that you may have hanging on the wall in your home somewhere in Isaiah 40, 31 that says, For those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength and they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint and all. It's the same word. Those who wait on the Lord. David says, Wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord. We wait at his foot in humility. We wait at the door in expectation. We wait at the table in service and readiness. We wait for the Lord. And when we do, no, notice what's in the middle of this wait sandwich. Be strong. And let your heart be courageous. This reminds me of another great Old Testament passage. The beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua, Caleb, and the generation that was born while they wandered in the wilderness are all that's left. Moses, who had led them through the Red Sea into that experience, 
had died. And the Lord comes to Joshua, and three times in Joshua chapter 1, he says, be strong and of good courage. Church, can I tell you that when we wait on the Lord, we are able to be strong and of good courage. As we trust in him, as he brings the security and the strength as we turn to him. All of us probably cognitively know the place where we turn should be to the Lord. But we know that people turn to all kinds of different things in our world. In fact, sadly, we see the effects of of the places where people turn for, for pleasure in their life and they turn for satisfaction and even significance. And they turn to toxic relationships and troubling substances and, and they turn and, and we know the wake of that, we see that. A lot of the people who gather at church on Sunday morning, they would say, we, we don't do that. But we turn to some places we shouldn't turn to, Right? First of all, we tend to turn to ourselves. We just suck it up and, and work a little harder and, and do better. We, we can solve this. We, we're very self-reliant people. And at the end of that, that's not where we turn. We, we turn to all of these different places. And even good moral people turn to places that are not the place to turn. David said, I'm turning to the Lord, and I'll wait on him because he'll be my strength and my courage. So here's my question for us. Where do you turn? Don't give the Sunday school answer. Where do you turn? When, when the challenges come your way, when you experience like David, God, where are you? And where are those who should be the closest with me? Where do you turn? As our musicians make their way to the stage and as we prepare to respond to God and his word, as we answer that question, where do we turn? Our response today may be, Simply to say, Lord, forgive me of where I've turned instead of turning to you. Maybe today you come to this place and your heart's heavy because you know what turning to places and people that don't help you mean. And today... The Lord's brought you to this place to turn to Him and to trust in Him. The bad news is every one of us is flawed and have failed. But the good news is that God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you've never trusted Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, we want to invite you to do that today. There'll be people here to pray with you. There, there's an opportunity for you to come. 
For those who know Christ, when we get caught in that trap of turning to ourself and our ways, maybe you're at the place where you say, it's not working. Will you turn to him? Maybe the temptation today is for you to turn and the Lord is saying, wait for me. Be strong and of good courage. Wait for the Lord. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the way that it speaks to our hearts and our lives. Thank you that that words that your servant David wrote thousands of years ago speak to us today. Lord, I pray maybe just for one or two people in this place who today need to turn to you as the Lord and Savior of their life. Pray that you would grant them the courage as your spirit calls to their spirit today. Lord, I pray for the church gathered. Lord, forgive us of those times when we turn to ourself. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today that you would strengthen them and that they would turn to you for everything they need as they follow obediently your call. Use these moments, Lord. Honor yourself through what's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to join me in standing. and As we sing together, an opportunity for you. There, there are people here to pray with you who would love to visit with you and talk with you about what God is doing in your life. As the Lord leads today, as we sing, you come.